Professor Ethel Tonkohan, an associate professor of politics at York University, this is Academic Antis. February is Valentine's Day month. So naturally, we're going to be talking about academic relationships. Last year, we had a great episode with Yasmin Abulab and Abby Bakken about their friendship and the strengths of their professional and personal relationship. This year, we want to talk about the relationships academics have with our life partners. One thing we've observed is just how challenging it can be for academics and for their partners who have to contend with the limited job opportunities the academic job market provides. What are the negotiations that partners make when one partner gets a PhD admissions offer or a job offer? Is it easy to be in a romantic relationship with an academic given academia's quirks? With us today to talk about navigating the relationship amid the absurdity of academia are my good friends, Suzanne and Tyler. And we also have my partner and producer of the podcast, Wayne. So before we begin, I'll have Suzanne and Tyler introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Suzanne Hindmarch, and I'm an associate professor of political science at UNB Fredericton. My pronouns are she, her, and I have known Wayne and Ethel since Ethel and I were in the PhD program at U of T, low these many years ago. Hello, I'm Tyler Summers. I'm currently a master's student in civil engineering at UNB, and I've known Ethel and Wayne since Suzanne started her PhD program at U of T. Yeah, that was 2006, right? Yeah, five or six. <laughs> And Wayne, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, Wayne Chu, I'm producer on Academic Antis here and former PhD student, didn't get through it, but uh, we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. So we're here today because we're talking about kind of academic partnerships and how academic relationships, romantic relationships work within this weird space that is the academy. So we thought we'd start by asking both of you, like, how did you meet? <laughs> Did you meet when Suzanne was already on, a, on an, an academic track or, I mean, I know how you met, but like, let's keep this the PG-13 version. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, high school would probably be the quickest way to describe it. I mean, we were attending high schools that were within about five or six blocks of each other. And we had some friends in common and that's how we first met. Yeah. So we have known each other for quite a lot longer than we have been together as a couple because we met when we were in our late teens, early 20s, and we both had a lot of dating dysfunctional, mediocre people to get out <laughs> of our system. So we actually, we'd been friends for years um, before I actually moved back to Edmonton after finishing my master's degree for what I anticipated would just be a couple of months to see friends and family. And then I was planning to move away again and, and embark on, uh, at that time, a professional career, not an academic career. Uh, but at that point, um, Tyler and I resumed our friendship and then you know, 20 odd years later, here we are. That's beautiful. And at what point did both of you decide Suzanne gets this offer from the University of Toronto to do her PhD in Toronto. What was the decision-making process like for both of you, for both of you to move here to Toronto? Pause. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we, did, we did discuss it. Uh, I was excited about it because it, it sounded like an interesting adventure going to Toronto. I mean, I'd always kind of wanted to, to experience a bigger city, so... Once I got there, there were some mixed feelings. What did you think you were? What did you think was going to be like? What were you expecting? I had no preconceptions because I had 
I've ne- I'd never known anyone pursuing mm. graduate education, so I I had no idea what I was getting into in terms of <laughs> with the realities on the ground. <laughs> Yeah. And so you moved to this big city, both of you. I remember like your first apartment in Toronto where there were people having a lot of loud sex on the top floor, right? <laughs> I thought we were keeping this PG-13. Uh, I mean, you know, we can talk about other people, not about ourselves. <laughs> but like, so you move here and you, you've you never been exposed to other people doing kind of higher learning, graduate degree. Was it kind of odd seeing your partner Suzanne in this new space and she would come back with stories about academia like what were kind of your initial reactions were you like what is this world so yeah just talk to us about that it was sort of like there were two worlds because there would be the the Suzanne coming back home and talking about classes and the amount of work she has to do but then there's a social aspect where a lot of the grad students would go drinking together too so I would always see like the Mm. fun socializing aspect of academia but I was totally disconnected mm-hmm. from the work side of things. Mm-hmm. For sure. Suzanne, like, what was it like, kind of? Usually it works in the reverse, right? Usually it's the dude leaving, like, the, the in the heterosexual partnerships, leaving, and then the woman who follows. Like, what's it like, kind of, reversing the gender dynamics there a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And I think, you know, when we talk about the tenure track offer and, and what that the gender dynamics of that were like, I think that is the point at which I noticed it more than the initial negotiation of moving across the country to grad school. Because I think for me, my experience had been, you know, I had parents who had had both done grad school, I had lived and worked elsewhere in Canada and overseas. So for me, the move to Toronto was not, you know, it wasn't the first time I had had lived away from from Edmonton, which, you know, I guess we should say is is our the hometown for, for both uh, myself and Tyler. So I, it wasn't really, I don't think it, it was a gen, there was a gender difference, but I, it's interesting hearing Tyler say that he was disconnected from, um, you know, the, the work stuff, because I think for me, that was the bigger adjustment because mm. I had been, I'd been a professional and I had worked in government and I had worked in NGOs and I had all of this non-academic experience and the norms of being in what most of us might think as as sort of like a a more normal professional work environment and the norms of academia were very different. I remember when I first got the offer from U of T and I was communicating with the professor that I would eventually go on to TA for and I addressed this this professor in in responding to the offer letter using that person's first name and I found out later that the that that professor was quite taken aback and, and was was, quite, was offended that I had used I had used the first name and I mean I was I was in my 30s and I was coming from a professional environment in government where, you know, we addressed very senior officials and government officials on a first name basis, even if we were at different points in the hierarchy. So it was there were a lot of weird norms to get used to in academia. Uh, and I'm not sure I don't know if, if Tyler experienced the the weird norms of academia in the same way, because I don't think that that was as evident in the social aspect of things. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I mean, I think certainly Wayne, who now works for government, can see more clearly the dysfunctions of academia, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think sometimes it's a little bit triggering because I see what you're experiencing, Ethel, and, 
you know, you get frustrated and angry about that. And then I'm also remembering what I experienced too as well. So it's this kind of flashback as well. So, you know, the weird dysfunctions, all the things that you kind of accepted were normal. And, you know, I'm first generation, you know, graduate student, no one in my family had ever gone into a PhD. And then I get to governments like, oh, wow, this is this is really different. <laughs> this is a lot more, you know, this is a, this is a lot nicer. What are the dysfunctions? Because we're all kind of circling around it, but can you just name them just to make clear what we're talking about? So one I, I will name, and I think this, this also relates to academic coupledom, is in academia, it is completely normal for work to take over your life, for there to not be evenings, not be weekends, the idea that there's always more work to be done and that you can and should be doing that work at all hours and be available at all hours. So that dysfunction, I think, starts when you're a grad student and you're expected to turn around TA ships, TA grading assignments and stuff in sometimes unreasonable timeframes or the, the incredible pressure of cramming an entire canon into your head for the comprehensive exams and the complete lack of work-life balance that is required to successfully navigate through a PhD and then navigate through the tenure track. And that it, that is considered completely, totally normal to have absolutely no boundary between your work life and the rest of your life. And ideally, you know, your work life should be your life and you know, the rest of your personal life you kind of fit into the cracks and crevices around your real academic career. No, it's interesting because, you know, Ethel and I met in the PhD program. Our relationship was born out of the PhD. We were both PhD students in the same program where we weren't doing exactly the same thing. But, you know, it's funny because there was no line between this is my work and this is my relationship. It was sort of all tied together. Um, So I'm actually curious, Tyler, what, you know, how you were experiencing what you were experiencing when, yeah, you were, we were at these parties and people are talking about the work. Um, cause that's what we did at, when we were drunk, we're talking about the research and the work and these stupid <laughs> debates over qualitative versus quantitative oh, uh, research. God. So yeah. What were your impressions? You know, in, in some ways it was kind of normalized for me at that time. I was working as a librarian mm. for a law firm. Um, so the work-life culture at Bay Street law firms is even worse than academia in many ways. So especially because I was working closely with generally the, the articling students or the, the first or second year associates. So seeing them put in t- 10, 12 hour days was an entirely normal thing. So increasingly, I just got the impression that like for professional or academic jobs, that's just mm. that's just the way it was. And these are the expectations. And after a certain point, things get better because looking at how the supervisors worked and lived was very different from the, the, the grad students. So I was making the same parallels between the associates and the senior partners who have very different work-life balances and things that are on their plate at any given time. So can I just ask, and I'm just kind of using my friend prerogative here. So you both moved to Toronto. You had a prior relationship uh, before you moved to Toronto. In contrast to me and Wayne, where our relationship began in grad school. In fact, as a couple, we've had to learn how to create a space outside academia, especially after Wayne transitioned. Like, I remember there was a date we had at Sushi on Bloor where we were arguing about quantitative research. And then one of us walked out. It was so nerdy. It was so dumb. Like, why? Why? You know what I mean? Like, it's so, like, come on. Yeah, no, you literally you literally just turned the opposite direction, just walked down the street. Yeah, I mean, about, like, 
research. I mean, geez, that's anyway. So like the dynamics were a little bit different and we've had to kind of get to know each other outside academia, especially as Wayne has left this dysfunctional world, right? I would venture to say that his workplace is more more functional than my workspace. Um, But for both of you, like did the relationship shift? Because, you know, prior to that, you know, Suzanne was working like, quote unquote, a regular job. And then she's immersed in this cult right? Like this academic cult where, you know, I remember you saying when you were studying for comprehensive exams, like you would just kind of mutter the names of the people you had to remember. And it's kind of like you had post-it notes and you had to remember all of these like gods of like comparative politics IR. And it kind of, so I'm just kind of wondering how did the boundaries of your relationship shift? And like, you know, how did you negotiate that as a couple? How did Kenneth Waltz well, and the gods of IR <laughs> destroy my relationships? <laughs> Like, I don't, I don't, I didn't feel like I was competing with these theorists, which is that's time. <laughs> but I, yeah, I mean, there are extensive periods where I just, I had to give Suzanne a lot of space and time to prepare for these comprehensive exams and then the, the, the peaks and troughs of her Yeah, work. and I think, um, I mean, maybe this is retroactive imagining the good old days when everything was better. But I, I do think when we both were, were, working full-time and in non-academic environments, I think we had a more consistently equal or equitable distribution of what was happening around the household Mm. and all of the other reproductive labor that, you know, the cooking, the cleaning, the house stuff that has to get done in order for a household and, you know, for a couple, for a family, for, for our lives to work. And I think definitely during the comprehensive exams and and a lot of periods during the PhD and the tenure track um, slog as well. There have been a lot of periods of time where, you know, I was working 12 to 15 hour days, seven days a week, and Tyler was picking up a lot more of, you know, all of preparing meals, keeping the house clean, you know, walking the dog. Um, So I, I think there was definitely a shift and a renegotiation of labor. Um, and I, I think that is also a place where typically, you know, the, the typical academic couple is a couple where um, the man is the academic and has a, a, a wife who might not be, you know, full-time stay-at-home mother and, and wife, particularly these days. But I think academia is still predicated on that model of an academic relationship where it's assumed that you have a spouse at home who's doing all of that invisible labor mm-hmm. for you. Did other people understand that? And I'm thinking about when Ethel did her postdoc at the University of Alberta. I mean, I was working at the time. Mm-hmm. I was out of the PhD program. I was had this, you know, just started this really great job. And, you know, she she left for Edmonton for two years. And I remember people, you know, family members, others being like, wow, you're so great. How can you like let her do that? And it was like, well, that's the academic life, right? But it's just there are these these norms that it's like in these gendered norms about how, wow, this is like a sacrifice that you know that I'm making. And I'm wondering, did people 
understand that from your perspective? Yeah. So I think, I mean, first of all, I think our families still don't entirely understand the <laughs> rhythms of, of academia and will consistently ask, you know, what are you doing for Easter or for Thanksgiving, which are two of the busiest times of the academic year because it's right before midterm exams and, and right before the end of, of semester. And we'll still, my parents will still be consistently surprised that we're not hosting, you know, a big <laughs> Easter dinner for 25 <laughs> of our closest friends who are also <laughs> academics at one of the busiest times in, in the academic calendar. So I think just generally, that world is completely opaque to people who aren't in it. But in terms of, of the gender dynamics specifically, I have had quite a lot of, of self-professed feminist men tell me how amazingly lucky I am that I have stumbled on this fantastic unicorn of a partner <laughs> who was, was amazingly willing to put his own career aside and to move for me and, and to give up so much for me. And to a certain extent, that is true. Tyler has made a lot of sacrifices in, in his career to accommodate mine. But I those are, are not people who I think have the same perspective that their wives have been amazingly self-sacrificing and unusually, you know, exceptionally accommodating because they cannot imagine a world in which their careers and their needs did not always come first. So I think there definitely is a gender dynamic in terms of how surprised and, and how, you know, as you were saying, Wayne, you know, how surprised people are that you that Tyler would let me do this to him. Um, I don't know if Tyler, if you've had any conversations or reactions uh, along those lines. Yeah, this has come up. If I'm working with the same people a lot, uh, my partner comes up, what she does, what I do. And when they find out that I moved here because of her job or um, these sort of things, like they never say anything. But there's definitely a beat <laughs> and a pause in the conversation. Well, they want to say something, but they don't because. <laughs> I, so I can see that either they have questions or they want to comment on, you know, frankly, who's wearing the pants. But <laughs> in some ways, it's lucky because of this exceptionally low bar that I have to clear. Because I'm thinking about you talking about how saying to Ethel, you're so lucky your partner lets you go. But I also actually didn't actually move to Edmonton. I mean, I know folks who like the expectation, you know, is that their partner just moves without question. I remember Ethel, you were saying when you were on the job market saying, you know, what about Kalamazoo? It was like, no, I'm not moving there. Yeah, for sure. And I think what's interesting is that we were both, I mean, Wayne was aware of what the academic market's like because he was in the PhD program. And he knows that when we make plans, it's in like three to five year increments, right? And he knows that, you know, it would be it wouldn't make sense for both of us for you to give up your permanent, you know, full-time job, government job, government job with benefits to follow me to a two-year temporary postdoc, right? Yeah. But at face value, I think a lot of the gender stereotypes are interesting. I mean, I think even some of my relatives have counseled me and they say, you know, honestly, some women will probably try to sleep with Wayne, right? They'll probably try to steal him <laughs> because you're not there. And like, this is... <laughs> This was like really well-meaning advice. And they're like, you know, and so I was getting a lot of pushback. And in some ways, I mean, you're kind of being construed as this like, I don't know, this sap who like lets this ball buster do what she wants. When really it was like a decision we made out of, 
you know, a sense of what the market, the academic job market's like. So, you know, these are the stereotypes we do have to fight against. And I'm curious to see for both of you, I mean, have you had like family members being like, you know, not saying anything, but kind of side-eyeing you and being like, is this really like what you have to do um, to kind of pursue, help Suzanne pursue the academic career? I think, yeah, <laughs> nothing I could ever like call anyone out on. <laughs> Because they're not, they're, mean, they're not listening they're to the podcast. So they're, <laughs> yeah. But no, I think they they have some questions sometimes, but they're never going to be rude and direct about it. Um, but I think the idea of yeah, me uprooting my life not once but twice to move to a different city for Suzanne's career, it, it's just outside the experience of everyone in my family to date. So not side eye maybe, but just like they don't on a very basic level get it, like. It, why? Why is this happening? Why can't she find something closer to home? Yeah, why can't you just get a job at the University of Alberta, Suzanne? Like, sure. why are you going to New Brunswick, for goodness sake? <laughs> yeah, and I think, again, that relates to, you know, what I was saying earlier about just academia and the weirdness of academia and how the academic job market works is completely opaque to anyone who's not in it because it's so, it's so unusual. It's, there is no other profession. I mean, maybe pro sports, that that works in this way where people have no you you go where the jobs are and you really have very little choice in if you want to pursue this profession if you want to pursue this career you're constrained and i think you know i sh we should also acknowledge that i mean tyler and i have a ton of privilege so you know because we are both white because we are in a heterosexual relationship because we have class privilege. We have all of these forms of, of privilege that made it a bit easier for us to envision living in a lot of places that would certainly not be as welcoming for a racialized couple or for a queer couple. So, and also to, you know, a place where because of Tyler's career, he is still going to be able to find work in his field in a way that, that might not have been possible you know, in some other cities. So I think that's also where there's all of these other structures and systems pressures and you know, patriarchy and heteronormativity and, and you know, all of, of these, these gendered racialized structures and forces that shape what becomes possible or not for academic couples, depending on who those academic couples are. That's such an important point. I think it reminds me of a friend of mine who got a job offer uh, in a country that doesn't actually recognize same-sex marriage. And uh, ultimately, this this friend decided, no, of course not. But like the job market is such that that was one of the only jobs that they were able to get, right? So this is a useful and important reminder of how these decisions are also constrained by these structural inequities. New Brunswick. So this is the second time that you've moved. Both of you have moved um, to pursue kind of Suzanne's career. What was that like? And what was the negotiation process like with UND? Was this something that was easy? <laughs> well, I mean, I will say generally that I think universities, especially smaller universities, do not do well 
in terms of, of accommodating academic spouses, whether those spouses are themselves academics or you know, have professions and, and careers outside of academia. I think the university as an institution still doesn't know what to do with spouses. And even the way that we talk about it, you know, we talk about the, the quote unquote two body problem as if the ideal academic is someone who should not have that that second body as a problem, and the fact that that you know you're a couple, there's two of you, is is a problem because it means that you're not completely independent, completely flexible, completely able to relocate anywhere and, and devote all your time and attention and, and focus to your academic career. Uh, so that's also one of the dysfunctions of academia. So I think generally, universities don't know. And, and don't have the institutional supports in place to to support um, academic spouses. Tyler, what's it like for you? So I was hanging out with a friend who has a partner who also moved for their job. And one of the hardest things this partner had expressed was that at least initially their social circles are their spouses, like department members. And it's just hard, right, to kind of find your own social rhythms, uh, especially in spaces where it's probably like the social circles aren't that big, right? So you're kind of stuck being friends with your partner's coworkers, but that in itself is also a little bit awkward sometimes, especially since they're not just coworkers. They're also people who potentially evaluate your partner too. So like, what's that process been like for you? Um. I think that has been one of the more difficult things to negotiate is just the, the shrinking of social circles every time we move and then trying to break out of Suzanne's social circle to find my own. Uh, this last time to Fredericton, uh, because I was a student again at that point, I sort of had a, a pre-built social circle of engineering uh, colleagues. Um, so that was helpful in some ways, but also kind of alienating in others because all of these students, mm. they're undergrad engineering students. They're all <laughs> half my age now. So we were acquaintances and colleagues and we can get along to various degrees or another, but we're never really going to be f- like close friends. I mean, I had more than a couple of the students say that they I remind them of their dads. Oh my God. So <laughs> like once once that comes out, that's like that's a barrier to friendship <laughs> that is never going to be overcome again. <laughs> Yeah, that's been difficult. And I think once I'm back to working full-time again, I'll be able to sort of explore the whole work-friend situation and sort of create a, a social identity that is separate and apart from Suzanne. Because, yeah, it's, it is hard, especially when these social gatherings with Suzanne and her work colleagues, 50 to 60% of the conversation will always be about the department, department politics, what's going on, while the other partners sort of either we go off to a different room or we sort of look on helplessly as the conversation just goes elsewhere. I will say, though, I remember the many times that we would be at a bar um, having a beer and it was nice to have you around to be able to, as we're, you know, talking about something or complaining about something for you to say, that is really fucked up because you're not enmeshed in that world. <laughs> yeah, I think... A bit of reality check is good, too, because I think there are a lot of really dysfunctional things that are tolerated in academia that are just not okay in the private sphere. Like what? Can we talk and about that? At length. <laughs> I mean... So when the PhD students, I think, 
there was a lot of bad personalities as supervisors that mm. I was hearing about all the time. Wayne not, might have something. Oh to say. my <laughs> god! You know what? He was an asshole. Anyone who listens to the podcast, Wayne's PhD supervisor was an asshole. Sure, and I, I just like literally abusive yeah. people. Like I, I don't. That is not okay, and it would not be tolerated in most other professional environments. And in terms of uh, department politics, I think there are some people that just don't engage with tasks that need to be done in ways that, again, just would not be tolerated in another environment. <laughs> like, you can't just uh, like opt out of doing parts of your job. That's not okay. I think Wayne has a lot to say about that. Sweetie, do you, do you want to, like... <laughs> it's probably a topic for another podcast. But, like, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's the point, right? Like, it's like, you know, you have partners who aren't in academia, who kind of listen to your friends in academia talk about it, who in some cases listen in on department meetings, because during COVID, a lot of this was virtual. And, you know, Wayne would just sometimes shake his head at me and be like, what's going on? Like, why is this still <laughs> happening? Why are you, this meeting has gone on for like two hours, but no decisions have been made. And you listen, it's just this circular argument and it's about theory and it's about these like abstract esoteric arguments when really you're just trying to figure out like whether to send an email or you know, some sort of minutia of administration, which should have been an email itself. Suzanne, do you have anything to say about kind of exposing Tyler to these like messed up dynamics? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what can, I can say that I'm actually comfortable. I think, you know, we can just say that there are definitely mm. non-academic norms that you know, in academia, just we don't follow them because it's so dysfunctional. So even what Tyler was saying, right, with respect to supervision, right, like your supervisor mm -hmm. almost becomes like your your kind of it's not even a supervisor in the workplace sense, right? Like your supervisor dictates your future, your supervisors. It's almost like a feudal relationship, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. So and I think it's also, you know, that exists on the tenure track, mm -hmm. too, in not quite to the same extent, but when you are pre-tenure, you one does need to be mindful of those who are, are tenured and in a structural position of power who are, are going to be reviewing your tenure file and, and are going to be making decisions, not necessarily you know, overtly explicitly blocking a path towards tenure, but there's a lot of just, you know, subtle ways that a path through academia can be made easier or harder. You know, I and and I think Tyler too, in social interactions with with senior colleagues, whether mm. that's in the department or more senior administrators, there's always, at least for me, you know, in the back of my mind, pre-tenure, there was always the, these are people who have structural power mm. over you and you need to be careful and cautious in those interactions. For sure. I think it's a profession that relies on us always owing someone something. Do you know what I mean? And it's it's not about even an assessment of your qualifications. There's always there's always something there's always it's so power laden in a way that other professions are not. Right. And I think that's the perfect note to actually wrap up this conversation. I mean, for listeners who are part of relationships, who are part of these negotiation processes, what advice can you give? <laughs> PhD students, early career academics who are trying to navigate, um, you know, these these partnership dynamics, whether it involves people who are considering taking up a job, but 
their partner doesn't necessarily, you know, want to move? Like, what what advice would you give folks? I mean, I would, I guess, I would say that there is a lot that is dysfunctional and that is not okay. But I think also that a good relationship, a good, equitable, you know, solid, loving relationship and partnership can be one of of the really important protective things that can mm. can help us, you know, manage and thrive in academia. And I think, you know, about, um, you know, Richard Eiten has had this, this great passage uh, in his book that uh, someone who's been a guest on this podcast, Deb Thompson, uh, you know, posts every year around Valentine's Day about the subversive power of love mm. and about the, the, you know, the power of, of love to, as a form of solidarity in what can sometimes be a challenging environment. So seek out those partnerships, seek out those relationships, but also recognize that there's a lot that's institutionally not okay, Mm -hmm. that institutions need to support spousal hires. They need to support Mm. paid leave for people who may need to care for a family member. They need to support, during the hiring process, support the non-academic spouses and, and, you know, facilitate conversations about what's available for for Mm non-academic spouses so i would say you know there's there's some collective action that we need to do to to transform those structures that's awesome tyler tyler do you have any (laughs) advice (laughs) i guess if you're negotiating someone who is entering a phd program or is now on the job market the the partner really needs to prepare themselves they need to be flexible in terms of location and preparing for either looking for work or w- whatever they do ahead of time, but also be prepared to to take on some of these extra tasks around the house or just understand that the relationship's going to be a little bit unequitable for a little while as things get settled into this mm-hmm. new job. Because there is no flexibility there and there are just non-negotiable deadlines and things that need to get done for the beginning of the term or whatever preparation work needs to be done so can i flip the tables too and ask ethel wayne what advice do you two have wayne i would actually echo what you guys have been saying in terms of you know there's the structural issues and the fucked up you know uh, norms but you know, when you're in the thick of it, having that understanding of what your partner is up against is really important. I think having had that experience in academia has helped me at least withstand some of the low moments, you know, that, that any, any relationship has to, you know, remind myself, yeah, like I'm upset or I'm feeling resentful or I'm feeling whatever, but this is not Ethel's fault. This is what she's up against. And just to have that kind of reminder uh, is important as well. But, you know, I, I would also say, too, like, you know, there's something very, I mean, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but there's in that kind of, those kind of dire straits. Like, it's very clarifying whether your partner and you are on the same page, you know, when you're in, when you're in the fire there. Right. Cause I don't want to give the impression that, Oh, you know, the, the secret success is that you have, you know, a successful partnership or you get married or you have kids or whatever, which, you know, there are things that we've done, but you know, like 
you know, if your partner, and I'm thinking about the norms and expectations, if your partner isn't on board with that, you know, then that's okay to recognize that, you know, this is an important part of your life. It's not necessarily a calling, but it might feel a little bit like a calling. And that's important too. This heteronormative norm of having a successful relationship is not something you have to strive for. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I think having someone be my partner in all of this, be my partner as I faced a bunch of different academic challenges, such as, you know, my department forgetting to send up my tenure file, which was, you know, really quite a punch in the face, right? And having Wayne there and being supportive, that allowed me to kind of go through these challenges because I wasn't by myself, but also recognizing that ultimately, what is a perfect partnership anyway, right? Like, you know, and kind of relinquishing this this notion of a perfect marriage or a perfect partnership and recognizing that we're all just doing the best we can, right? Um, which, I don't know, I mean, that's not overly prescriptive, but also kind of fighting for the structural changes that Suzanne uh, was getting at as well. Like what institutionally can we do to accommodate families, right? Not just partners, but families themselves. So. Yeah, no, I've been thinking too about, you know, in a previous episode where um, uh, Harshita Yalamardi was saying, you know, as PhD students, you're often the top of your class. You're sort of the sh- used to being the shiny object or the teacher's pet, and you need to like every you you need to achieve everything and check all the boxes and like being successful in life. Um, but you know, you don't have to. <laughs> I know. I know. Sometimes Wayne gets mad at me because he's like, "I'm not like you are not. I'm not your qualitative research project." Sometimes I have an internal checklist where I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> done with my book. Students, children are in bed. I turn to Wayne and I'm like, okay." How was your day? Let me know. And I'm, I'm, I've kind of put on this like interviewer affect as though he's like part of my focus groups. And then Wayne's like, "Can you just, can you just watch, you know, Dairy Girls? Like, why are you like pivoting?" And I'm like, "Right, because I have this internal checklist, trying to kind of be the perfect professor, be the perfect mother, be the perfect partner." <laughs> and he's like, "Stop." I don't know if you both have that dynamic. Yeah, I think sometimes negotiating the whole fitting and talking around the edges while Suzanne's trying to get other things done does occur, but I don't know if it's... I've never felt like a project. That's an interesting perspective. So my project building has been successful. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you both so much. This was a lot of fun, um, and I think our listeners will get a lot out of this conversation. Thank you. It it was lots of fun to, to talk about this with you, and thank you again for inviting us on the podcast. Remember, listeners, that academia is not set up for couples. It is designed with the belief that individuals are mobile without caring responsibilities, and that anyone who chooses otherwise, who tries to, say, get a spousal hire, or even decides to reject job offers if the move wouldn't be good for their partners and their families, isn't really serious about their jobs. In Academic Antis, we resist these assumptions. These are outdated and deeply gendered ways of thinking. So as always, do what's right for you and for your partner and your families. And structurally, let's fight for ways to make the academy more accommodating for partners and families. And that's Academic Antis. You can follow us on Twitter at at Academic If you use Mastodon, find us at academicantis at maz.to. For email, you can message us at podcast at academicantis.com. 
And finally, visit academicantis.com support to find out how to support this podcast. This includes becoming a Patreon supporter, which goes right into supporting our production costs. Today's episode of Academic Antis was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and produced by myself, Wayne Shu, and Dr. Nisha Nath. Tune in next time when we talk to more Academic Antis. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.